We're going to continue our series, Liberty in Jesus. And I thank God that there is liberty and freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity is not uh, bondage. Christianity is not slavery. Christianity is us being able to experience the freedom, the genuine freedom, that God created us to experience. Um, You know, there's no other freedom in the world. I know a lot of people in the secular world are talking a lot about freedom. They, they talk about sexual freedom, or they talk about reproductive freedom, or they talk about uh, religious freedom. They talk about a lot of different freedoms, but no one knows what true freedom is until they've been set free from the bonds of sin by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know what true freedom is. So the title of my sermon today is An Authentic Gospel. As we go through the book of Galatians, you're going to find that the gospel is central. Of course, the gospel is central to the entire Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. But in Galatians in particular, it is about the legalism that the church in Galatia was experiencing. The churches in Galatia, I should say, were experiencing. They were experiencing a false doctrine that was causing people to live in the legalism of the letter of the law. Um, There are churches that exist today that are very legalistic. Um, They will tell uh, you ladies that you have to wear particular clothing. Now, I won't hesitate to say I believe that we ought to dress modestly. I believe that. But there are multiple articles of clothing that you can use to dress modestly. You don't have to wear a long denim skirt to be modest. Now, I'm not against long denim skirts, okay? Don't hear that either. But there are some churches, they will preach, you ladies have to wear a long skirt all the time. That's legalism, okay? And that's not scriptural. And that's really what the whole book of Galatians is about. It's about men imposing their laws and their preferences On the children of Christ. And when they do that, they cause them to live in this unhealthy, uh, depressing bondage that no one can really live up to. It's a standard that uh, humanity has set that no one can live up to. It's a level of perfect expectations. And I'm so thankful that the Lord Jesus saved me even while I was yet a sinner, knowing that I would still be a sinner even once he saved me. And it's by his grace that he forgives me each and every day when I mess up. So if you will stand to your feet, we're going to read in Galatians chapter 1. We're going to read verses 11 through 24. 11 through 24. And the Bible says this beginning in verse 11. For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel preached by me is not of human origin. For I did not receive it from a human source, and I was not taught it. But it came by a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, who from my mother's womb set me apart and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who had become apostles before me. Instead, I went to Arabia and came back to Damascus. Then, after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to get to know Cephas, and I stayed with him 15 days. But I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. I declare in the sight of God, I am not lying in what I write to you. Afterward, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I remained personally unknown to the Judean churches that are in Christ. They simply kept hearing, He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. 
Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful um, for the Holy Spirit-inspired writings of the book of Galatians. Um, God, that Paul was obedient to write what you told him to write through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And today, God, as we also encounter legalism in different aspects of our lives and Christianity and in the faith, um, God, we also encounter people who try to tear apart the true gospel, Lord Jesus, that you came to seal with your death and your resurrection. So today, God, as we study your word, I pray that you'd give us a resolve within our hearts to fight for the truth of the gospel, to fight for lost souls, and to see lives changed in the Candler community. God, we're thankful that you have ordained Pole Creek Baptist Church in this particular area at this particular time so that our community can hear the gospel. Lord, help us to rise to the challenge and to be that church that you've called us to be. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. So in verses 11 and 12 that we just read, Paul states the argument that he's making. So basically, he's refuting the idea that the gospel he preaches was derived from his own mind or his own imagination. There would have been people in those churches in Galatia who would have been lashing out against Paul because Paul was undermining the false doctrine they were teaching. As they were trying to teach the churches in Galatia that those who are in Christ must also be circumcised, which you're going to see is the, the central issue here in the church of Galatia, Paul is refuting that and saying that it is simply by the grace of Christ that you're saved, not of any works that you can do. So here these people are questioning his apostleship. They're questioning the gospel that he's preaching, and they're saying, well, Paul's not a real apostle. Paul wasn't really told this by Christ. The gospel that Paul preaches isn't really the true gospel. And they were trying to undermine him and put words into people's minds to try to undermine and provide this undercurrent of rebellion against the truth of God's word. So here he is going to make the argument, and he wants to authenticate the gospel by proving from whom it came. And we've talked about that a lot. We've talked about truth and the essence of truth. The essence of truth is really based upon who that truth comes from. Now, if truth comes from God and God is transcendent, which means God exists outside of his creation, he exists in a way that he doesn't need his creation, he actually existed before his creation. He is self-existent, he is self-sustaining, he doesn't need anything in order to sustain himself. If that is the true God we're talking about, then he and he alone is qualified to speak truth and to determine what truth is more importantly. In other words, when God says something is true, X, Y, Z, then we can determine that it is true because of who he is, because of the fact that he is above anything that any of us can say. See, a lot of people who don't believe that God exists, they want to speak like truth exists. They say, oh, there's no God, but uh, murdering is wrong. And, and you have to ask them, well, if murdering is wrong, why do you say it's wrong? And they say, well, it's, it's a law. Well, I say, I, I don't care if it's a law, because Hitler, when he uh, was the chancellor over Germany, he had laws, and he believed it was okay to kill Jews. So does that mean that those laws were right? Um, you know, there's been a lot of tyrants who have ruled countries who have imposed unjust laws, so can we really rely on the law of the land to determine morality? No. Well, then they may say, well, you know, it's just ethically wrong, and, and I believe it's wrong. Well, in reality, I don't care what you believe. You know, I, I care what you believe in terms of you as a person and you having a right to state what you believe, but that doesn't make it true. It doesn't make it true just because you say it, right? 
So how do we determine what ultimate truth is? Well, we have to go to the ultimate truth giver, the ultimate God, the creator of the universe, the one who has no one above him, the one who is above all and doesn't need anything, the one that is self-sustainable, self-existent, and eternally pre-existent. And now when he speaks, we can take stock in it. When our God gives truth, we know it is truth. We know it is objective truth, which means it's immutable and unchangeable. No one, no matter what your feelings say, no matter what your experiences say, you cannot change the truth of God Almighty. His truth is set in stone. And this is the argument that Paul is making. He's saying, listen, this gospel isn't true just because I'm saying it. It's not true just because some other apostle says it. It's true because I received it as a revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. God himself spoke this to me, and therefore it is true. All of us who know Jesus have a story, all right? And Paul had a great testimony. When I say story, I mean testimony. In other words, what was your life like before you met Jesus? How did you meet Jesus? And then what did your life look like after you met Jesus? And when you tell that story based upon those three parameters, that is your testimony. In other words, what I was like before, what happened when I met him, and how my life changed after I met Jesus. So today, Paul is going to use his own testimony to authenticate the gospel that he was preaching. So if you're taking notes, this is going to be our first aspect of Paul's testimony before I met Jesus. So if you're taking notes, write that down. Before I met Jesus. And in verses 13 and 14... Paul makes mention of this very thing. Beginning in verse 13, Galatians 1, the Bible says this, For you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. Here Paul is saying, I grew up Jewish. And if you're wondering, Judaism is the religion of the Jews. It is the Old Testament religion uh, based upon the law given by Moses. He was saying, listen, I was the, a Jew of Jews. I, I knew the law. I studied the law. And we find out that Paul even studied under a great Jewish theologian in the first century. Um, he was somebody who was set up for success, to rise in power in the Jewish religion. He was going to be someone who was well-respected. He was a Jew of Jews, is what he's saying here. How many of you guys have ever heard of John Newton? John Newton. John Newton's story is one of those testimonies that is miraculous. John Newton was someone who was born in August the 4th, 1725. And he's the British writer of the most famous hymn ever written. And many of you know this, all of you know this, Amazing Grace. He was a slave trader, though. So can you imagine a slave trader who wrote the greatest hymn that ever existed? For years, he would sell the African coastline, capturing Africans to sell into the slave trade. He was a vicious man who treated the Africans he captured absolutely horrifically. Concerning his life in general, though, he was quoted, I sinned with a high hand, and I made it my study to tempt and seduce others. Well, Paul, before coming to Christ, we'll find here in a moment that he was a murderer of Christians. He had received permission from the Sanhedrin, from the rulers of Judaism, to go into Damascus and kill Christians. 
That was his practice. That was how he was advancing in the Jewish faith because Jews looked at Christians as this cultish sect that was trying to overthrow the commands and the laws of Moses. They looked at Jesus as a blasphemer, someone who wasn't really God in the flesh. So Paul was receiving permission from them to go and kill, and Paul was doing just that. He would imprison Christians. He would rip uh, Christians from their families. There were so many different things that he did. Well, we look at John Newton, and we almost see a mirror image of someone who was very evil, someone who... Uh, was so inhumane to others, someone who treated people as though they were property and, and treated them in such a vile way. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, if you guys want to turn over to Acts just for a moment, back just a couple of books, Acts chapter 8, we're going to see a, a more historical account of Paul's uh, conversion experience, not only his conversion experience, but some of the things that he did to other people. Acts, by the way, is known as the history book of the New Testament. It is written in a, a narrative form, a historical form. It is a chronologically accurate, and you can get a good feel of the first century church by reading the book of Acts. So if you go to Acts chapter 8, verse 1, Paul was actually involved in the very first Christian martyr mentioned in Scripture. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Saul agreed with putting him to death. And on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Here, Paul, formerly known as Saul, um, his name was changed uh, when he was converted. Saul was one that was agreeing and even giving permission himself for people to be killed. The person that is talking about in verse 1 is Stephen. We know Stephen as the first Christian martyr in the scriptures. In other words, he was the first one to be put to death for his faith and his preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find Paul the one signing off on the stoning of Stephen. In Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 3, the Bible says this, Saul, however, was ravaging the church. Remember, Saul is Paul here, the same one who wrote Galatians. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. He was breaking up families. For his cause. We go to Acts chapter 9, verse 1. If you flip forward there a chapter, it says, Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, so he went to the high priest and requested letters from him to, to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, which was a first-century term for Christianity, the way, you notice that's capital letters probably in your Bible, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And then we go forward to Acts chapter 22. Go forward to Acts chapter 22. In verse 4. And this is Paul speaking. This is after his conversion, but speaking about when he used to persecute Christians. Beginning in Acts 22, verse 4, he said, I persecuted this way, talking about that sect of Christianity, to the death. He said, I arrested and putting both men and women in jail, as both the high priest and the whole council of elders can testify about me. After I received letters from them to the brothers, I traveled to Damascus to arrest those who were there and bring them to Jerusalem 
to be punished. You go forward to chapter 26 in Romans. Turn forward there to chapter 26, beginning in verse 9. Here's Paul recounting of those days when he was persecuting the church. Beginning in verse 9 of chapter 26, the Bible says this, In fact, I myself was convinced that it was necessary to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I actually did this in Jerusalem, and I locked up many of the saints in prison since I had received authority for that from the chief priests. When they were put to death, I was in agreement against them. In all the synagogues, I often punished them and tried to make them blaspheme. Since I was terribly enraged at them, I pursued them even to foreign cities. We can go back to Galatians now. Those of you who are with us this morning, if there's been a time and a place in your life where you've trusted in Jesus, you can think back to a time before your salvation. Many of you may have been saved at a young age, and you may not be able to remember a lot of the things that you did before you were saved. But one thing is true. If you were truly born again, something has changed in your life. And many of you may look back and you may say, Ben, you know, I'm so ashamed of the things that I've done in my past. Welcome to the club. You know, you're just one of many who have committed the same sins, who have been enslaved to your sinful nature. And Paul here, the greatest in my opinion, of the apostles, the one who wrote many of the most beautiful books in our Bible through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was a man who was known for murder, a man who was known for ripping families apart, a man who was known for just absolute vicious rage. And yet we see what God did in his life. So that's before I met Jesus. And I think it's important for all of us, maybe even write that down, journal about what your life was like before you met Jesus. Because I promise you, when you begin to share the gospel, and I hope you're doing that already, but if not, when you begin to share the gospel, what you were like before Jesus is going to be important for you to be able to articulate to those you're trying to witness to. Because a lot of people, when you witness to them, you try to share Jesus with them, they look at you as thinking you're thinking you're better than them. You know, you're coming to me because you think I'm some kind of a sinner and I need to be saved. Well, they need to understand that, listen, hey, you're not alone. I'm a sinner too. Hey, you know, I did things in my past that I am ashamed of, you know, and they need to understand that you're someone who has experienced transformation and grace, that you're not like you used to be, and it's not because you go to church, it's not because, you know, you do X, Y, Z, and you follow the rules, and you're a good boy, good little girl, it's because the grace of God, the power of the Holy Spirit has changed your life. That's why you're not who you used to be. So it's important to remember, no matter how painful it is, Who was I and what was I like before I met Jesus? Well, here's the second aspect that I want us to look at here in Galatians. If you're taking notes, write this down. When I met Jesus. When I met Jesus. And we're going to find that in verses 15 through 17 here in Galatians 1. Beginning in verse 15, Paul says this, But when God, who from my mother's womb set me apart and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles. He says, I did not immediately consult with anyone. I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who had become apostles before me. Instead, I went to Arabia and came back to Damascus. Here we see Paul's conversion. 
If you want more uh, detailed things about his conversion, we can look at Acts chapter 9. So let's go back to Acts chapter 9, and let's just read his testimony. Read the historical account of when Paul got saved. When did Paul meet Jesus? And you're going to find out that Paul wasn't actually looking for Jesus when he was saved. So Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says this, Now Saul, what we read before, was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. It says he went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Did it sound like he was looking for Jesus? As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. In your own study time, you can read a little bit further about how God miraculously changed his life on the road to Damascus. Now listen, don't think that your salvation experience is going to look like Paul's, Saul's, okay? Yes, a bright light flashed from heaven. Yes, Jesus audibly spoke to Paul. But you have to understand that Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul lived in a time when the fullness of the scriptures were not completed yet. So God revealed truth to those men whom he raised up audibly in a way that they could then communicate to others. See, today the reason Jesus doesn't necessarily work like that anymore is because we have the fully revealed word of God. So we know the will of God. We know the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ because we have the complete canon of the scriptures. We have the completely finished Bible from Genesis to Revelation. So now there's certain things that you know that I don't need to pray about. I don't need to ask Jesus, should I uh, witness to my neighbors? I don't even have to ask him that. The Bible tells me to. It says, make disciples of all nations. There's certain things I don't have to say, Lord, should I lie in this situation? You know, would it be okay, Lord, for me to lie? No, the Bible already says it's wrong to, be, to lie. You should be a person of integrity. So there's several different things in Scripture that the Lord Jesus has communicated to us that is settled truth and does not need to be revisited. It's here. Now, there might be something that you ask the Lord to give you favor in, you might say, Lord, would you give me favor as I witness to my neighbor? Would you prepare their heart before I go to them so that when I witness to them, their heart is soft and they are willing to accept the truth that I share with them? Those are the kind of things we pray about. So Paul here is visited by the Lord Jesus. He is saved by the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus calls him to go and do mighty things. Well, John Newton, and we'll go back and talk to him a little bit, the amazing writer of Amazing Grace, the one who was a slave owner, you may wonder, well, what happened in John Newton's life that would cause him to want to treat human beings so horrifically, but then at some point in his life write the most beautiful and famous hymn of all time? Well, John Newton's moment when he met Christ was extremely intense. Kind of sounds similar to Paul. He was on a slave ship at the time, and a violent storm had begun to brew. The storm was so powerful that it was believed by the men on board that they would not survive. Newton 
at that moment, cried out to God for mercy. And that was the beginning of his experience of salvation. It says that he didn't immediately leave the slave ship, but his life was changed, and he very quickly thereafter did leave the slave trade. It was the moment that he cried out to God. He cried out to Jesus. He acknowledged the fact that Jesus is who he said he was. And we're going to find out more about what happened to him after his salvation in a little bit. So Paul's conversion was one of the most amazing conversions, but I want you to understand that every conversion is amazing. And when I say conversion, I mean when someone is traveling in life, okay, and they're traveling according to their own desires, they're traveling according to their own passions, their own um, aspirations are their God. And that's everyone before they come to Christ, by the way. Because it is absolutely proven, no matter what culture, no matter what country, no matter what tribe, no matter where anyone is, at any given moment, they are worshiping something. Because we understand from Christians and from a Christian worldview that because we were created for the purpose of worship, that all human beings innately understand that they should be worshiping something. No one has to teach you to worship. No one has to teach you to follow something and to give yourself to something. That is just innately created within us. So before we come to Christ, we are worshiping ourselves. We're worshiping materialism. We're worshiping things. We're worshiping other people. The conversion is this. When I come to the place in my life where Jesus reaches out and he reveals himself to me and says, Ben, I died for you. Ben, I rose from the dead in order to pay the penalty for your sins and purchase for you a place in heaven. Today, will you repent and will you trust me? Will you give your life to me? And at that moment, I am converted. And I say, yes, Jesus, I give myself to you. And now, as opposed to my own aspirations and my own desires and my own passions and what I want to worship, now it's Jesus. Now, he is the focal point of my life. He is the object of my worship. He is the object of my adoration. He is central to my universe. That's conversion. That is repentance. The actual word repentance, the definition is to turn about face, to change one's mind. To basically, I'm heading this direction, and now a 180-degree turn, bam, I'm following Jesus. And that's what salvation is. And that's exactly what happened to John Newton, and that's exactly what happened to the Apostle Paul. Now, you might be out there making excuses, and you might say, I've never accepted Christ, Ben, but you don't know what I've been doing. Have you not been listening to what I've been saying? The Saul, the murderer of Christians, John Newton, a, a, a person who inhumanely treated Africans as though they were garbage and as though they were property, Jesus saved miraculously those two men. I don't care what you've done in your past. I don't care where you've been. I don't care who you've hung out with. The Lord Jesus and his blood can wash you whiter than snow. There is no sin too great that the blood of Jesus can't wash there is no sin too great that the king of glory can't forgive based upon your repentance. And I'm so thankful for that today. You know, there's a few terms here that Paul uses that I think is very humbling. So if you will, go ahead and go back to Galatians. Galatians chapter 1. We're going to flip back over there. In verse 15, he uses two terms that I think are extremely important for us to understand because it brings about humility in our lives as Christians. Verse 15, it says, but when God, now it doesn't say, but when I, or but when Paul, it says, but when God, who from my mother's womb set me apart and called me by his grace. 
Now let's just stop right there. God called him by his grace. You know, the essence of the word grace is receiving something that you don't deserve. Receiving something that you didn't earn. Receiving something that is completely unmerited based upon your behavior. It is a free gift. Now, what Paul here is saying is he's saying that I'm saved today, as he's writing the book of Galatians, not because I was good, not because I decided to do right, and not even because I was searching for Jesus. He says, but God called me from my mother's womb and set me apart. God called me by his grace. You see what salvation is truly all about? It is about an undeserving sinner like me, an undeserving sinner like Paul, an undeserving sinner like John Newton, going about my business, living just fine in my own sin, and the God of the universe intersecting my life. Me not expecting it, me not thinking about it, but he came my way one day. Jesus came my way. The the king of all glory decided, I want Ben. Hey, and if you've been saved today, he did the same thing for you. There was a day and a time and a place in history where he called your name. And you know what? The, the, the biggest tragedy of all is, is when he calls your name and you tell him no. When, when, you, when you push him away and you kick against the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Today, I want to encourage you, if you've never accepted Jesus, would you just say yes to Jesus today? Just, just accept him. Repent of your sins and give your life to him because if you're being compelled to do that today, you know why you're being compelled. It's because he called you. He set you apart from your mother's womb and he's calling you by his grace today so that you might be born again and so that you might be saved. Here we see that the apostle Paul did that and the language that he is using causes us not to glorify ourselves and not to say that we are somehow more intelligent than others. Hey, listen, the fact that someone else refuses Christ and the fact that I accepted Christ, I have no uh, answer for that. I I can't compute that in my mind because I know that it was nothing of myself that I accepted the Lord Jesus. But you have other people who who have been told the gospel and yet they refuse, yet they say no to eternal life. Hey, listen, don't kick against the conviction of Jesus Christ because, listen, the Bible teaches today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. You might say no to him, and he may not come your way again. Don't take him for granted. Don't take the Holy Spirit for granted. Don't take his calling and his his grace and mercy to come your way. Don't take that for granted because if he comes your way, you better snatch him up as quickly as you can. So that's when Paul met Jesus. That's when John Newton met Jesus. And when I was a six-year-old boy, I met Jesus. Now, if you're taking notes, this is our last aspect of this testimony. After I met Jesus. After I met Jesus. And we're going to find that in verses 18 through 24, where Paul shares with us what happened after he got saved. So in verse 18, he says, Then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to get to know Cephas, who is also the apostle Peter. And I stayed with him 15 days, but I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. I declare in the sight of God, I am not lying in what I write to you. Now, the reason he's saying that is, is because there were people in the churches of Galatia who were saying that the only reason Paul was preaching the gospel he was preaching was because he was taught that by the other apostles. So what he's trying to get them to understand is, is it was some three years 
before, after his conversion, that he even went and met and spent time with the apostles. It was, it was three years of a gap. Because what Paul was trying to get them to understand was that as an apostle of Christ, it wasn't a man or a church or a person that taught him the gospel. It was Jesus Christ himself because as Paul went off, it says, into Arabia and Damascus, it's believed that as he was gone by himself, Jesus was speaking with him and revealing to him the gospel that he would preach. Because you heard what Paul said in verse uh, 13. I'm sorry, verse, let's see, 15. Well, let's just start with 13. For you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism. He says, I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. He said, I advanced in Judaism beyond my contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. He says, but when God, who from my mother's womb set me apart and called me by his grace, was pleased, now here's the key, to reveal his son in me, so that I could preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Paul was very careful to share that it was the Lord Jesus Christ who revealed the gospel to him and no one else. It was a revelation of Jesus Christ, as it says in verse 12, Jesus himself. So he's trying to prove to them, listen, it wasn't because I was brainwashed by these other apostles. It wasn't because you know I had some teacher teaching me these things. But it was literally the voice of Christ that showed me what the gospel is, and that is the gospel that I am now preaching and teaching to you. Go on down there in verse 21. He says this, Afterward, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I remained personally unknown to the Judean churches that are in Christ. They simply kept hearing, He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. So here we understand that after Paul met Jesus after his conversion on the road to Damascus. There was something that was so dramatically changed in his life that he begins to preach the gospel. That he begins, he was not just happy being saved and just saying, okay, I'm good now. I, I got my ticket to heaven. You know, I'm just going to fold my hands and chill. No, he was so dramatically changed that he began to preach the gospel in the very city that he was some years before going to kill Christians in. Can you imagine the change in that person's life? Can you imagine the, the 180 degree to turn from killing Christians to being one yourself and trying to convert people to Christianity? Now listen, if that's not a dramatic change, I don't know what is. And you know, what, what bothers me, and I think what hurts the church so much, is that we have people who say, I've been saved, but they look like the world. Nothing's ever truly changed. They can't really tell you, well, God gave me strength to stop this, or God gave me a passion for this, or God changed my heart in a way that is unexplainable. And I believe that the reason the churches, the Christian churches in our modern day age are so weak is because we have so many people sitting in our chairs and our pews who have never truly been changed by the gospel. They've never truly accepted Jesus. There was never truly a time where they trusted in Jesus. They just prayed a prayer at one point. Maybe it was when they were younger. Maybe it was in VBS. Or maybe they did it because their friends did or whatever it may be. And, and they just said, hey, I'll pray the prayer. Sure. If that's going to get me to heaven, I'll say it. That's not salvation. Do you, do you understand what salvation is? It's when I am broken over my sin. I'm broken over my hopeless condition. And the Holy Spirit shows me the truth in that I can be put back together. I can be forgiven. And I can be saved. 
That's what salvation is. And when I come to that realization of the brokenheartedness of my sin, I say, Jesus, I'm sorry. Jesus, I want you. Will you save me and will you change me? I believe you died for me. I believe you rose from the dead in order to give me life. Will you save me? That is salvation. That is what we must be teaching people to do. And I think, you know, and I understand people talk about the sinner's prayer, and many of us pray the sinner's prayer, and many of us are authentically saved. And I don't want to make you um, unneededly doubt your salvation this morning. If you have trusted in Christ as your Savior, the Bible says you're saved. But I want to speak to those who may be uh, confused. I want to speak to those who may not truly understand what salvation is because a prayer doesn't save you. The Bible teaches us what saved Paul. Did, did he pray the prayer? Did, did he pray the sinner's prayer? Did he go to the altar? Did he go find a pastor? No, Jesus came his way one day and Jesus said, you're mine. Paul said, okay, Lord, what's next? And the rest is history. I believe that we need to get back to what a biblical salvation is. After I met Jesus. So yesterday I had the honor of marrying my brother-in-law, John, and his now wife, Mary Grace, who attend here very regularly, if you haven't met them yet. You know, I would say that weddings, uh, wedding ceremonies, they're wonderful events, you know, where family and friends get to watch two people commit their entire lives to each other, you know, in that permanent bond of marriage. But, you know, in the government's eyes, the ceremony is of little importance unless a marriage license has been applied for and signed. Any of you uh, get married and have to do a marriage license? I hope so, because if you didn't, you're not legally married, okay? <laughs> we'll have to get that done, okay? So I, I, I filled out my portion of that marriage license for them. They filled out their portion, signed it, all those good things. But when the government is looking, you know, they don't care who the preacher was, really. They don't really care what church you got married in. They just want to make sure that they've got that license on file to say that you were married to that individual. We know with the gospel, here in Galatians, Paul was trying to authenticate the fact that the gospel was real, that the gospel was true. You know, and many times in marriage, the way that you would authenticate that you got married is, is there's at the register of deeds, your marriage license should be there. And it should be on file and it should be recorded. And that is how it was authenticated. But as we think about authenticating the gospel, sure, it's, it comes from God. And we know that God is the one who created the gospel. God is the truth giver. But how do we truly know when someone has experienced the gospel? How, how do we authenticate the gospel, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of those around us? You know, if you hear politicians talk a lot, which we all do probably if we watch the news, and it gets kind of old, but for some reason we uh, expose ourselves to that, that stuff, right? You, they, they say right now that our economy is doing well. You know, that things are strong and things are... See, you guys are laughing because you, you hear how foolish it is. Things are healthy and things are good, you know, just... The economy's going great. But I'll tell you this, it, you know, it's badly wrong, uh, and I think that statement is extremely false. Uh, when I went to Taco Bell a few days ago, now a lot of you eat at Taco Bell too, you just won't admit it. Don't, don't act like you don't eat at Taco Bell. I know you do, all right? Now listen to this. For one meal at Taco Bell, it's 12 bucks. 12 bucks. That's insane. Listen, with the quality of food at Taco Bell, it shouldn't be more than four bucks, I'm telling you, all right? And the economy's good. 
And the reason I say that is I'm not trying to get you fired up politically, okay? That's not what I'm here to do, and although that may happen sometimes, and I apologize for that. But what I'm trying to get you to understand is, is that there's got to be results. When someone says something, but yet what you see in their life is completely opposite, it really makes what they say null and void, doesn't it? Because they're not authenticating the truth of what they're saying. There, there's nothing in their life that is pointing to what they're saying is actually true. When we think about the Bible and how it teaches about salvation, the Bible gives a litmus test of what an authentic salvation, an authentic life, a life after one met Jesus should look like. In James chapter 2, verse 17, the Bible says this, In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. You know what that's saying? That's saying if you say you're a Christian, yet there is no fruit in your life, yet you don't look like the Bible says a Christian should look like, that your faith is dead. Now, that's a litmus test for your salvation, by the way. That's a way to authenticate the reality of your salvation. You say, well, Ben, I've, my life's never changed since salvation. I'm still living in a, in a lifestyle of sin. And I'm not saying sin that you, you know, you're driving down 26 and somebody makes you mad and you say a word you shouldn't say, okay? That's one of those sins, you know, that just kind of come about there. And you shouldn't do it, by the way, but it happens, okay? I've not done it recently, but it happens, okay? <laughs> so y'all are thinking I'm testifying. I'm not testifying anymore, okay? I'm talking about what y'all might do, okay? No, I'm just kidding. That, those kind of sins Christians still battle with. Okay, we still battle with temptations. We still battle with hard stuff. What I'm saying is if you're living in a repetitive, uh, overtly lifestyle of sin that continues and continues and continues without repentance, the Bible says your faith is dead. The Bible says that your salvation is not uh, authentic. It's not genuine. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 23 say this, Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their what? Their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire so you'll recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. It says they will know you by your fruit. 1 John chapter 1, verses 6-7 through 7 say this, If we say we have fellowship with him, talking about Christ, and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. If we walk in light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And listen to this, And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Remember we were talking about John Newton earlier. It says, John Newton left the seas in 1755 and immediately began having Bible studies in his Liverpool home there in England. He was so disgusted by the slave trade and what part he had played in it. He was eventually ordained into the ministry 
as an Anglican minister and began to pastor his first church in 1764. It says, while in ministry, John Newton wrote some 280 hymns, which included Amazing Grace, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds, Oh, for a Closer Walk with God, and There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. He also wrote concerning the horrors of the slave trade to aid William Wilberforce in ending the slave trade in Britain. In his publication, he spoke of how terribly the Africans were treated, some were tortured beyond imagination, and many of the women were even raped. That is a changed life, my friends. From a slave owner to someone who sets people free with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we look in verses 18 through 20 there in Galatians 1, Paul's attempt to authenticate his apostleship was showing that he was not taught, as we said before, the gospel by other apostles. So when we look at Paul's testimony, this should be all of our goal in life. This should be our objective. Verse 24, it says in Galatians 1, And they glorified God because of me. Listen, don't you want to be the cause of people glorifying God? When they see who you were before you met Jesus, when they find out that you met him, and then they see who you are after you met him, and they say, praise God. God changed that life. God miraculously changed their heart and saved them. That's, that's the, the testimony of all believers, by the way, how God changes hearts. The Bible teaches us that when we're in Christ, we're new creations. The old has passed away, and all things are made new. Let's pray this morning.